We pray you open our hearts, open our eyes, open our ears to hear what you have for us. In your name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 37. It can be found on page 810 in the Bible under your seat. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 to 37. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said... Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, Or by the earth, for it is his footstool. Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Mike Stanzik. I'm the pastoral resident here at Trinity Community Church. We're happy to have you here today. So today we're going to be going over mainly easy topics, um, nothing entirely threatening. Um, just looking it over, we got lust, adultery, divorce, oaths, truth-telling, not seeing anything that should ruffle any feathers. I think we'll be fine. Um, so just sort of a, a brief glimpse of what I'm going to do this morning. There's a lot here. Um, so It's likely that as I walk through this passage, I'm going to generate more questions than I'm going to generate answers. Um, A lot of things are going to occur to you that you'd like to know more about, Um, and and I I won't be able to address it all uh, to to everyone's satisfaction. Um, But I would also just encourage you, I I don't actually think that we are supposed to appropriate the truth of Scripture by ourselves. Um, I, I think that the sermon is here for you to encounter God's word. The Spirit uses um, the sermon, not so that we can go back and kind of hold ourselves up in our homes and, and ponder until we change, but rather so that we can become more embedded into the life of the church. And it's actually there in community where these questions are, are pieced apart. So I, I just ask you, seek out friends. Um, seek out your community group, um, leaders here in the church, uh, whatever. And, um, and yeah, follow these questions to their to their end. Don't get so busy that, that they cease to burn. Um, so I'm going to spend the most time on lust, um, the first section, because I think culturally that's the most urgent. Um, divorce, I think it's culturally urgent, but Matthew will touch on it again in chapter 19, so I'm not going to spend as much time there. 
And then obviously we'll spend a little bit of time with oaths and truth-telling. Um, and again, as conviction comes up, um, what, I, what I would also say is, is that you have been given to the church and the church has been given to you. And, and that as we listen to Jesus' words, we, we need to have the courage to let others fight our battles with us. Um, and so in that spirit, let's, let's open in prayer. Lord Jesus, there, uh, there is nobody smarter than you. There is nobody who understands life more than you do. And I pray that it's with that attitude that we would approach your word today. Um, and outside of your spirit, there's no way that an imperfect human being can speak your words to a group of imperfect human beings and for change to happen. But when you're, what is impossible with man is is possible with God. And so I pray, Spirit, that you would bring conviction um, to those who are hard-hearted, encouragement to those who are tender-hearted, and that we would begin to look like, um, ever increasingly, like the people that you want us to be. Amen. Okay, so um, let's imagine a, a situation. Let's say a whole bunch of people in Lake County have decided to, to break off and we're going to become our own society. Lake County, too. Um, so, Lake County 2 has decided that everyone in this room, we are going to be the new lawmakers of our society. And so in order to figure out what laws we need to make, we, we have to take a look at Lake County 2 and kind of see what some of the issues are in our community, and, and we'll build laws around that, right? So what we're finding as we look at Lake County 2 is that, for whatever inexplicable reason, a whole bunch of us love shoplifting, like, I mean, like a really, really passionate feeling about shoplifting. Um, There's nothing they love more than just beelining it to the acid wash jeans and Macy's and trying to run. So um, we we need to do something about all the small valuables that are leaving stores in the pockets of cargo shorts. Um, So we're going to make a we're going to make a law no stealing. So that law really makes sense right. And the goal is that now that we've made this law and we're going to enforce it right. We're not just going to say we're going to enforce it um, we can bet that as we enforce our no-stealing law, we're going to see a dip in shoplifting, okay? Um, we can be confident of that. But that law will always be necessary, it will always be relevant, as long as there's something in our hearts that wants to steal, right? So, and like, even though shoplifting will go down, the impulse to steal will still be inside of us, which means that some of us will still shoplift. And so we as the lawmakers, what we realize is, is that we need to somehow make everybody in Lake County 2 the sorts of people who don't steal. That something actually has to take place in their hearts so that they're not just committed to following a rule, bucking against this impulse inside of them that's telling them to pull into Macy's, um, we have to make them the sorts of people that don't steal. And if that were to happen, um, what would happen to that law? It, it wouldn't be abolished, right? Like when we abolished slavery, we were saying, okay, that was a terrible institution. So we're rejecting the reason that law was made, right? Anything having to do with slavery, we abolished slavery. So we're not going to abolish the law on stealing. Um, we're not saying that it was bad. We're not saying that it was a bad law. Instead, what we're saying is that 
what that law was trying to generate has been generated. It's been fulfilled. So we're not going to abolish the law on stealing, but rather for, for Lake County too, when all these hearts have been changed and all these people turned into the sort of people who don't steal, that law is fulfilled. You see what I'm saying? That makes sense? I, I think that that's what Jesus is getting at when he says that his disciples will have a righteousness that is greater than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's a group of people who, who run after a righteousness by the heart, uh, from the heart, a righteousness that's energized not just by keeping the rules, but by loving the God who commanded them, right? As the disciples of Jesus, we're those, we are those who actually have this opportunity to stop and see the beauty of what it is that God is commanding us to do because we have been forgiven. We're walking in the forgiveness of our sins and in the enabling power of the Spirit. And so it can really truly be said that our righteousness is greater than a righteousness of mere law-keeping. It's more than behavior. This is about virtue. This is about character. And so right, right here in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is unpacking these six examples of how this plays out. So when all is said and done, we're going to hit anger, lust, divorce, um, oaths, retaliation, and, and loving your neighbor. So I'm going to tackle three of those today. And what we're going to find uh, throughout this whole section is that where the way of the kingdom is practiced, the law is obsolete. Where the way of the kingdom is practiced, the law is obsolete. So I'd just like to reread verses 27 and 28 real fast. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. A couple years ago, um, the Atlantic published an article by one of their staff writers, Connor Friedersdorf, um, rough name to say quickly, um, and he, he was reflecting on uh, porn culture. Um, he's speaking as an agnostic, um, and he brings up this point in the article where he says, okay, I can acknowledge um, that porn is almost like a public health issue, um, but as I look at the culture of only 150 years before, what I see is that even though porn has skyrocketed, rape has gone down. And I don't know about you, he says, but to me that's an all right compromise. Again, he's speaking as an, as an agnostic. And so what he says is that the statistics prove it, that as porn use goes up, um, rape happens less and less in modern culture. And so he says, I think that's, again, speaking as an agnostic, that's probably the best we can do, and that's, that's an all right compromise. And so if, if I were talking to, to Connor, I think there's a part of me that would, would really eagerly affirm that. I'd be like, yeah, rape is a ruinous thing. It is, it is terrible. And so, yeah, if I'm forced to take a decision uh, just between those two poles, um, I'll take that compromise. I'd rather have no rape or less rape in, in my culture. But if I were talking to him, I, I would affirm that about what he's saying, and then I would want to say, well, let me push back a second and ask you why you think there's a correlation between these things. Why is it that as porn use goes up, rape happens less? Because what that tells me is that whatever urge there is in the human heart, it's getting satisfied by both of those things. And it seems like if we really want to talk about a good solution we need to address the root. 
and not just the branches, right? And, 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 and so the question becomes, what is that urge? What is that, that urge that's, um, you know, if rape, adultery, pornography, if these are all branches of the same tree, um, what's the soil? What's the root? Where is it getting its nutrients from, its source? I think Jesus says that it's lust. That lust is at the heart of, of all these things. That all these things are, at least in part, satisfying lust. And so we have to understand what lust is in the mind of Christ. It might be helpful to start with what lust isn't. Um, lust is not acknowledging that somebody is attractive, Right? That is not lust. Like, when I, before I married Ashley, I thought she was attractive, right? In part, that is why I married her, right? Like, I, I saw her as a human being, as a person of complexity and, and beauty, um, and said, I would like to spend an indefinite amount of time with that individual. Um, and so I put a ring on it. Like, so, like, on some level... <laughs> Um, on some level, attraction had to precede uh, my marriage, right? I mean, that, that's, so that's not lust. Like, Jesus is not saying that, that attraction is the dark root underneath rape, adultery, adultery and, and pornography, or all these other things. Um, instead, I think lust is something far different. Um, lust is when we entertain sexual desire for somebody that we have no right to entertain. It is when we entertain sexual desire for somebody that we have no right to entertain. In fact, I think maybe there's even something more sinister going on. So think back to, to last week's sermon when Dan preached on anger. So remember, remember how he described anger with the, the shark tank illustration, um, which I thought was, was really useful. Um, when I'm angry at somebody... On some level, I'm, I'm viewing them and saying, you exist in part to do what I want you to do. And right now, you're not doing what I want you to do. Which means that because I'm the center of the universe and because you exist for my use, you have thereby incurred my wrath and now I'm angry at you. In other words, it, that sort of anger dehumanizes somebody. It reduces their humanity down to the use I can make of them. Let me say that again. So it reduces their humanity down to the use that I can make of them. And it's the same with lust. Let's, let's think for a moment about what happens when we lust. We're taking a human being who has worth and dignity and complexity, who, who by their act of living, and yes, this has been warped by sin, but by their very act of living, they reflect something of the divine, to the world. And I'm taking that individual and I'm isolating them out of their actual lives, their actual day-to-day living, and I'm placing them in this film reel in my head. I'm making them do certain things. I'm making them act certain ways. They no longer exist as a human being, but as an object that exists for pleasure. I've reduced their humanity down to their use. I've dehumanized them. And, and so, is this making sense? Like how rape and adultery 
on some level, they both emerge out of this same source. They're both trying to take something from somebody. The question at that point becomes, am I going to do it willingly or by force? And what Jesus is saying here in this passage is before you have even reached that question, before the act has taken place in real time, it has taken place, place in your head. That you have already dehumanized them. You have already uh, made an attack on some level on their humanity. You've just done it quietly and privately in your own mind. And, and this is why you could be like the scribes and the Pharisees, and you could entirely avoid adultery, entirely avoid rape, entirely avoid pornography, um, and still get it completely wrong. If in your head you are still entertaining lust. Because day in, day out, you're dehumanizing image bearers left and right. And so Jesus can say what he says here. Before it takes place in reality, it takes place in your head. So far, I've been talking about lust in terms of how it's a mistreatment of others. But the truth is that's also a mistreatment of ourselves. Verses 29 to 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So I want us to let that hit us. That Jesus is making this issue pretty urgent. Right? On some level when we unrepentantly and unreflectively foster lust in our lives, what we're saying is that we don't want the rule of God in our hearts. And so remember back that that Jesus is saving us for more than just a new destiny. He's saving us for a new humanity, for the rule of God to happen in our hearts. And when we unrepentantly sin, we're sending an implicit message that we don't want that. Now, put that in the whole context of grace. I'm not I'm not preaching a works righteousness here, but I am saying that Jesus thinks this is super urgent. But I think we could even make it more concrete. Um, So before I go on to, I I would just say, it's clear also that Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he's using a lot of hyperbole, a lot of poetic language. He's using extreme imagery because he's getting across a very extreme truth, which is simply that lust will destroy us. And it isn't just that, that eventually we go on and commit adultery and ruin lives. It's, it's literally that it will st- start to corrupt us from the inside out. And it isn't just that, that down the line, um, without throwing ourselves on the grace of God, lust will ultimately destroy us. I think more and more what we're seeing is that lust will have corruptive effects now. Um, there, there's a fantastic movie that I saw recently called The End of the Tour. Um, and it's an interview, uh, it's adapted from an interview that took place with the author David Foster Wallace, uh, who's a major author of the 90s and early 2000s. Um, so basically, a reporter from Rolling Stone just joined Wallace on the last five days of his book tour for um, Infinite Jest and, uh, and just recorded everything they talked about. And so the movie was sort of adapted from that, that transcript. And, and 
there's something that, that Wallace says that is fascinating to me because, again, he's speaking as a non-Christian, so he's not using categories of sin. Instead, he starts to talk about porn specifically here as a public health issue. So, so here's the quote. What you're really doing, I think, is you're running a movie in your head. You're having this fantasy relationship with somebody who's not real strictly to stimulate a neurological response. So as the Internet grows in the next 10, 15 years, and, and who knows, virtual reality pornography becomes a thing, we're going to have to develop some real machinery inside our guts to turn off pure unalloyed pleasure, or I don't know about you, I'm going to have to leave the planet. Because the technology is going to get better and better, and it's going to get easier and easier and more and more convenient and more and more pleasurable to sit alone with images on a screen given to us by people who do not love us but want our money, and in a meaningful way, you're going to die. Not a Christian. He's not operating from our categories. So this is David Foster Wallace, who's also, I mean, he's like the poster child for postmodernism. This is him saying these things. Before lust brings a person down to hell, it will ruin them. It isolates us. It dehumanizes us. I mean, don't, don't we want to be whole? Like, I, I want to be able to look a person in the eye without shame. And Jesus is saying that we need to treat lust like an alcoholic treats alcohol. Man, you can't handle a drop. Cut it out. Again, like, he's, he's obviously not saying, like, literally, cut off your hand, literally gouge out your eye. At least for men, I mean, if we're committed to surgically removing lust from our lives, there's another organ that recommends itself for amputation, right? Is that a diplomatic way of saying that? Like, the point is that we need to end this now. Remove it from your life. Cut it off. And, and so if, if this is an urgent, present thing for you, like, I, I don't know how else to say it, it's killing you. It is killing you. It might not feel like it. It's killing you. Do what you need to do. Put the software on your phone and on your, commu- your, your computer. If there's a billboard that does it for you, take a different way to work. If it's a person, humanize them in your mind through, through prayer. Like Every time those thoughts occur, pray for that person because in doing so, you're going to put yourself in their lived experience and they're going to become an, a human being to you all over again. And at that point, you'll cease to dehumanize them through lust. Do whatever you need to do because Jesus' disciples are not meant to be those who see each other as a means, as a means for pleasure. I think this is the heart of purity because the truth is that I don't have a claim on any of you. I don't own any of you. I don't have a right to any of you. And none of you have a claim on me but I'm responsible to you. And you're responsible to me. Because we're the church, and because we're human. End lust. Jesus is calling us to a beautiful life. Man, a beautiful life. In which laws against adultery simply become obsolete because we have become a community of purity. Again, it's not that we're sitting here abolishing laws and adultery. We just don't need them. They can gather dust. That's the kind of life that Jesus is 
is calling us to as his disciples. And just imagine for a second, like, again, we won't actualize this fully before glory, but we can in part because we've been forgiven of our sins and because we have the Holy Spirit. And so we have to hear Jesus' words as a call to something that we can actually experience, at least in part. Not in whole, but in part. So imagine for me, with me just for a second, in our county, in our hypersexualized culture, what would it mean for there to be this, this group of people who are pure? For there to be a community in which a woman can look into the eyes of a man who is not her husband, confident that moments before he wasn't using his eyes to undress her? Can we imagine the safety, the sense of trust? And I want that. I want, I think we all do. I think that our our whole culture is more and more hungry for a place that is clean. That's all I'll say on that. Where there's purity, laws against adultery are obsolete. Next, where there is fidelity, laws on divorce are obsolete. Again, I'm going to move fast through this section just because later on in Matthew, we will return to it again. Um, If you have immediate questions, though, ask somebody. Um, I'll be camping out somewhere at the end of the service if you want to to talk, you know, as, as long as you want. Um, So verses 31 to 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So um, obviously this is a a controversial topic even within Christianity. Um, a couple quick notes on the context of Jesus' words. He's actually weighing in on like a hot-button issue in the first century. Um, so this, is, this moment is really, really driven by context. So a couple things to keep in mind. Um, Jesus quotes from a law in, in the Old Testament that is really geared toward um, the people who are in power in the relationship. And this didn't change between Sinai in the first century, but... In a marriage, the man had all the power. I mean, pretty much. Like, um, this was a highly patriarchal um, society. We should be praising God for the way that that women are are, um, gaining more rights now. Um, You know, but because, because the reality is that it was not always so, that things were very, very grim. A woman had next to no rights. And so... um, what you essentially have are a group of men debating about um, the necessary grounds for them to get rid of one wife and, and move on to another. And, I mean, it's literally, uh, it's literally that bad. So you have a very conservative school, the Shammai school, that says only in cases of sexual immorality can a man divorce his wife. And then you have another school called the Hillel school. Uh, Rabbi Hillel literally said that if she burns your dinner, you can divorce her. Later on, Rabbi Akiba would say, if you're walking down the street and find a single woman who's attractive to you, divorce the first wife and take her. And, and, and this whole argument about the interpretation of Scripture, guess who wasn't present for all those debates? Women. And so guess which of those schools was really, really popular in the first century? 
the Hillel school. Now, the power dynamic that we're dealing with here is less present um, nowadays. Um, but that doesn't mean that the passage is irrelevant. Rather, that question of what needs to happen for me to get rid of this person, um, now that question gets to be entertained by both parties in the marriage. Um, I think in American culture, what we see um, is, yeah, I mean, just a, a divorce culture where very little sometimes is necessary to convince a person that they can comfortably divorce their spouse. Um, and so we have to recognize that, that what Jesus is doing here, he's, he's trying to reframe the question so the question isn't, what needs to happen so I can get rid of this person? Instead, he's saying, no, among my disciples, marriages will have fidelity from the get-go. You're in this to be in this to the end. That's not to say that there aren't reasonable causes for divorce. Um, you know, we're going to get more into that in chapter 19, um, unpacking what the Bible does say, because there are situations where that needs to happen because we live in a sinful world. But Jesus instead is painting the ideal here, right? That fidelity um, should mark a marriage. And, and so why is it, uh, like the question occurs to me, why is it that we even become attracted to, to divorce? And I think a lot of it has to do with um, the same concept that we encountered with anger and lust. Um, at, at some point, I began looking at my spouse and asking, what is this person doing for me? What are they really adding to my life? I don't know if the spark leaves, Maybe things become routine, whatever, but on some level we start interacting with our spouses as though they exist for our use. And at that moment, we've dehumanized them. And, and so we, we have to realize that what Jesus is saying is that divorce never aspires to be anything greater than the lesser of two evils. And a lot of times in American culture, we interact with divorce as this awesome thing. Like, all right, let's start fresh, as though it's a good thing but it's never more than the lesser of two evils in the biblical mind. And it's interesting. So, so Esther Perel um, is a psychotherapist, and a lot of her body of research has been on infidelity. Um, so we could just as easily use her for an, to illustrate the previous section. But I think um, a lot of what she says really illuminated uh, divorce culture in America for me. So she was commenting on affairs of the heart, so these are uh, affairs that are motivated by romance, by, by this idea that, hey, I've fallen in love with somebody other than my spouse, um, and so this affair generates. Um, and she says it's interesting, almost across the board, when the marriage is dissolved, the original marriage is dissolved so that the spouse can go with um, the paramour, um, that relationship ends very quickly after that. And the reason why is because the original person wasn't looking for a new lover. They were looking for a new self. That's something about that adventure of having this new lover. It was really the adventure that, that maybe it recalled them to nostalgically to this previous time where they felt freer or more their best self, whatever. Um, but once the original marriage ends and they have to actually encounter the reality of this human being that they're in a relationship with, things fall apart. They were only ever interested in a new self. I think we can apply that across the board. How often do people become tempted toward divorce because their marriage just feels boring? How often do we let resentments percolate over time 
And if we would just put in the energy into our marriage that we'd put into an affair, things would be cured, at least in part. It reminds me, so uh, one of my favorite movies, um, and it's my dad's fault, is uh, my dinner with Andre. Um, when I was young, he talked about that movie, and then it haunted me. I finally saw it and loved it. But um, So at the end of my dinner with Andre, Andre Gregory is finishing this long, compelling monologue um, about kind of how, how people find meaning in their lives, about our fears and how we try to avoid hard things. Um, he calls it looking for firm ground, and it's fascinating where he goes with this. So he says, you see, I think that's why people have affairs. Have an affair, and up to a certain point, you can really feel that you're on firm ground. You know, there's a sexual conquest to be made. There are different questions, whatever nonsense it is. It's all, I think, to give you the semblance that there's firm earth or that there's meaning again. But have a real relationship with a person that goes on for years. That's completely unpredictable. Then you've cut off all your ties to the land, and you're sailing into the unknown, into uncharted seas. Do, do we talk about our marriages that way? You know, when newlyweds um, give their, their vows, it's common for them to say something about how they're eager for this new adventure of marriage. Um, I think that those of us who have been, who've been married a few years um, can be really stupidly cynical about that moment. Like, ah, oh, just wait. Um, no, but for real. Like, like, you know, we'll hear them say, I can't wait for this new adventure. And then the reaction is, but I think that they're actually in touch with the reality. Marriage is an adventure, but any adventure worth its salt has hardship. And I I think maybe it's the hardship, if anything, that a newlywed is out of touch with. But those who have been married for many years and have become cynical, here's the part that they get out of touch with, that any adventurer worth their salt knew about the hardship from the start and committed to fight through it. Real adventures have hardship. Real adventurers face it. Jesus is calling us to a way of fidelity, to view our marriages with this attitude of being all in. Don't stop the tickling. Don't stop uh, the late-night conversations, even when you're super tired. Failed at that this past week. No, for real. Like failed at that this past week. My wife had a bunch of stuff that she wanted to talk about, and um, I was just a poop about it, and she picked up on it, and um, I didn't get to have that conversation with her. Did the extra hour of sleep help me? No, it was just, it was, it was, it was silliness. I mean, short-sighted uh, ridiculousness. He's, Jesus is calling us to be people of fidelity, all-in kinds of people. My parents always told my brother and I, divorce isn't in our vocabulary like, like, can you imagine how awesome that was to grow up under that? It was awesome. I can't imagine uh, growing up in a home where my parents' commitment to each other wasn't just a given at all times. That, that would be horrible. But my parents made it clear that they, um, they had fidelity to each other. I'm not just saying that because they're over there right now. Like, I'm, you know... <laughs> Although in part I'm saying it because they're there over, but not like, I'm not like trying to get, you know, favor or whatever. I'm saying it because they deserve to be honored for that, right? That's what Jesus is calling us to. We have to remind ourselves that when we committed to a marriage, we, we committed to a human being, 
uh, not just to an object for our satisfaction to be thrown away when it doesn't do what we want. Um, and then marriages of fidelity, laws on divorce, um, maybe they're not abolished, but they gather dust. They're obsolete. Where there's fidelity, laws on divorce are obsolete. Having said all that, I'm going to add one thing. We're going to get more into this in chapter 19 of Matthew. Um, what you'll find out is that there's disagreement within Christianity about reasonable cause for divorce. Again, we'll kind of state the church's position later on. Um, but there's nothing in the Bible that says that you need to stay in a home that's abusive. There's nothing telling you that you need to sit under psychological or physical abuse if you are unsafe. Hear me on this. If you're unsafe, you can work out your theology of divorce from a guest room. You can't do it from a grave. I'm trying to be that extreme here because if you are under abuse, get you and your kids out. Okay, hear me on that, please. That's all I'll say on that. So where there's purity, laws against adultery are obsolete. Where there's fidelity, laws on divorce are obsolete. And finally, where there is authenticity, laws on oaths are obsolete. Verses 33 through 37. I think I need glasses. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you can't make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Okay, so why do people swear in when they're about to give witness at, at a, in a court? Um, you know, so they, they swear, I swear to tell the, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Why do we have that as a cultural practice? Um, I think because we, we, we know, and the courts know, that there's a whole bunch of the time where people aren't telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, right? And so somebody takes an oath to, to sort of ensure that they are going to tell the truth, Jesus here, he's not quoting from, from any one particular verse in the Old Testament so much as he's kind of like putting together this big conglomerate of, of verses. But what, what, what's important for us to see today is, is why people take oaths. Like, you know, when I was thinking about this, like in normal conversation, I, I'm not prone to taking oaths. Um, you know, like if, I'm, if I really want you to know that I prefer <laughs> brown mustard as a dipping condiment for soft pretzels, I don't feel like I need to swear on the throne of heaven in order for you to trust me, right? Um, I would have a temptation to swear on the throne of heaven if I were promising something to you or, or telling you something very extraordinary. How often do we see this in conversation? No, 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 I swear to God this happened. On some level, what, what you're doing is, is putting up, like, verbal collateral, um, you're saying, I, I know this is big, that what, this thing I'm saying, but so I've put up this oath, this verbal collateral. Um, you know, call me on account if I'm, if I'm wrong. Um, it's not a big cultural practice for us today. But I think what we need to see is that if people were truth-tellers, and if other people knew that people were truth-tellers, 
and this was all working mutually, nobody would take oaths. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. How often do we craft our language so that we're hiding inconvenient truths? How often do we use words to kind of manipulate people's perception of the world in a way that doesn't line up with reality, and we, we know we're doing it. And why do we do that? Isn't it ultimately because we, we want that person's perception of reality to fit what would be most convenient for us? I remember I, I did this with a boss years ago. Something had gone wrong, and so when I reported what had gone wrong, um, I didn't say anything untrue, but I very strategically chose what I told him. And so, and, and what, what was probably the worst part about it is that um, I was never caught. Um, and by God's grace, I, I was moved to... Um, to admit that to, to him and to, to tell him what I had done and, to, and, and the way I worded it is just to say, like, you know, I think that on some small level I used you. Um, I made use of you. I, I tried to manage your perception of the world um, in a way that would be convenient to me. And they were very gracious and gave me a hug and it was, you know, we were reconciled, but it was, um, it was this moment where I began to realize how subtle lying can be and how hard truth-telling can be. Um, and that instead, as Christians, we're, we're supposed to be fostering this community where we all have nothing to hide. Um, in in um, the meditations of Marcus Aurelius, he, um, he has this fascinating quote. I'll, I'll say it a couple times because he, he words it um, strangely. It, it doesn't come across very well in translation, but it's always be thinking such thoughts that if someone were to ask you, what are you thinking? you could answer without shame. Always be thinking such thoughts that if someone were to ask you, what are you thinking? You could answer without shame. When truth-telling is combined with Christian love in a community, like, let's just imagine together what that would be like. So we all decide we're all going to be truth-tellers. We're all going to follow Jesus in this. Um, and this whole thing is undergirded by the trust that, that you are responsible to me, I'm responsible to you, you love me through a committed love, I love you through a committed love in the church. Um, I will start telling you what I think. And sometimes it will be stupid, sometimes it will be hurtful. You'll start telling me what you think. Sometimes it will be stupid, sometimes it will be hurtful. And over time, as we love each other through that, I will come to trust you. You will come to trust me. And as those conversations develop and, I, and we work out our differences, work out our thoughts, um, suddenly my thoughts themselves will begin to change. I'll begin to think the thoughts of Christ as we call each other to that. You'll begin to think the thoughts of Christ as we call each other to that. Can you, can you imagine? Is that worth the cost? I want to be able to look you in the eye 
to me, that's worth the cost. That's worth the, the raw, awkward um, weirdness of, of working through what we really think, um, all in order to, to ha- foster this community of, of trusting love committed to, to one another. How eager is our culture for that? It would take courage, but eventually oaths would gather dust. Where there is authenticity, oaths are obsolete. So again, where there's purity, laws against adultery are obsolete. Where there's fidelity, laws on divorce are obsolete. And where there's authenticity, uh, laws on oaths are obsolete. So Jesus is picturing his church as a community of purity, fidelity, and authenticity. And when we have this sort of heart, um, we begin to experience the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. So I know that with sermons like this, um, where uh, like the goal today on some level was to bring conviction, because I think on some level that was Jesus' goal. And, um, and so sometimes we can walk away with a lot of discouragement. And I just think about uh, something that N.T. Wright said. He, he said that when Jesus called his disciples to follow him, he was both telling them what to do and how to do it. He was both telling them what to do and how to do it. Trinity, when, when we are people who have been forgiven and we're living in the grace of God moment by moment, we're freed to pursue this without shame, without baggage, to, to obey Jesus not in order to win his favor, but because we have it. And so we're not going to embody this entirely, but we will in part. And for those of you who are tender-hearted, um, I would just say be encouraged. Know that there is nobody smarter than Jesus. There is nobody who knows life more than Jesus. And that as you just seek to obey him, grace will be there when you fall. As you seek to obey him, grace will be there when you succeed. And, and you will begin to experience humanness. And for those of you who are hard-hearted, um, Hear what he says happens if you don't cut off the right hand. And know that that has already begun to take place. And for both the hard and the tender-hearted, um, the way forward is through repentance. To come empty-handed before the Lord. To ask Jesus to change us and to teach us and to, to follow him in obedience. And I think that as we do this, we will be salt and light we will be a counter-movement in this world, a city on a hill. I want to be a part of this type of kingdom, don't you? I want to follow whoever rules this type of kingdom, don't you? And so my, my prayer is that we would have the courage to go forward. Are you with me? Are you with me? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there, I just pray for the courage. And God, we're, we repent and are sorry for 
the ways in which we fall, we don't just confess, but in this moment, Lord, we, we turn away. And thank you for your, your constant grace over us. That by the cross, you have guaranteed to us endless patience. So long as we, we stay on the road. And we thank you for that, Jesus. You are a good king, and you are bringing a good kingdom. Um, man. I pray that we would want it more and more every day and experience it more and more every day. Today better than yesterday, and tomorrow better than today. We love you, Lord. Amen. Amen.